0: That's O-L-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Did you know that supporting your health can be as easy as taking two capsules a day? Each daily dose of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is formulated with 24 scientifically studied probiotic strains that support gut, skin, and heart health, helping you start the new year off right. Visit Seed.com slash Spotify. And use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all.
1: The Spangler family lived in Littleton, Colorado. Robert and Nancy had been married for 23 years. They met in high school while they were both living in Ames, Iowa. Robert, who went by Bob, was born in 1933 and he was adopted as an infant by Merlin and Ione Spangler. His adoptive parents were loving and Bob had a comfortable life growing up. Merlin was a prominent civil engineer and professor who specialized in soil engineering. Eventually, a building at Iowa State University was named after him. Although life was comfortable for young Bob, it was complicated. He had great adoptive parents, but he always wondered who his biological parents were. He also admired his adopted father Merlin, but Merlin cast a large shadow and Bob never felt like he would ever escape it. Where Bob did find tremendous success was in high school football, where he played fullback. In his senior year, he was the team captain, and they had an undefeated season. Bob and Nancy got to know each other while they both worked on the school newspaper. After graduating, both Nancy and Bob attended Iowa State University. Bob graduated in 1955 with a degree in technical journalism. Nancy and Bob married that same year. In September 1955, Bob enlisted in the Army. He joined the Signal Corps in the Motion Picture and Television Division. He became a motion picture camera operator and he was stationed just outside New York City. Bob was honorably discharged in 1957. He continued to work in broadcasting, but never stayed at a job for very long. One job he had was working on Sesame Street in its early days. In November 1961, Nancy gave birth to a son, David, and this was followed by a daughter, Susan, in August 1963. Bob eventually got a job working in public relations, and he was an account executive. One of the accounts he dealt with was the Honeywell Corporation. His work with Honeywell led to many trips to Denver, Colorado. He became enamored with the area, so he moved his family there. Bob got a job with the American Water Works Association, and the family settled in Littleton, a suburb of Denver. By all accounts, the family seemed typical. Bob was good at his job. Many people thought of him as a chameleon. He would change his personality to suit whatever situation he was in. Bob and Nancy's son, David, was a talented musician who played in a rock band. The band often practiced in the basement of the family's home. Their daughter, Susan, was a popular young woman with many friends. Nancy was content and doted on her family members. Although they were living a good life, Bob didn't seem satisfied with his family life. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. From the Nespod Studios. Enjoy the show.
1: In January 1978, he moved out of his family's home. He moved in with a woman named Sharon Cooper, who was his assistant at work. They had been having an affair for some time now. But things weren't much better with Sharon. Nancy was meek and could be bossed around while Sharon would fight and went back down. So, November 1978, Bob moved back in with his family. On the night of December 28, 1978, Susan had her boyfriend and two friends over. They were making plans for a New Year's Eve party a few days later. That evening, Bob got into an argument with Nancy and David just as Susan's friends were leaving. Fights at the family's home weren't uncommon, but this one was intense. Bob accused Nancy of being too lenient with the kids. About 36 hours later, at about 10 a.m. on January 30th, 1978, Susan's boyfriend, Tim, went to the Spangler home. He let himself in and went into 15-year-old Susan's bedroom. She was lying face down in bed and didn't respond to him. Tim became concerned and checked her body for a pulse. He couldn't find one. He also didn't see any blood. He ran to David's room for help. The room was a bloody mess. David was lying face up in the bed and he was unresponsive. Tim ran into the master bedroom, which didn't have anyone inside of it, and called 911. 911. Paramax arrived first and they realized that nothing could be done for 15-year-old Susan and 17-year-old David. They were both dead. Susan had been shot in the back and the bullet pierced her heart. She died nearly instantly. No blood had come out of the wound. David had been shot in the chest. There was a bloody pillow nearby that appeared to have David's face imprinted on it. It was determined that he was shot in the chest and then smothered with a pillow. Officers looked around the rest of the house. One of them went to the basement and turned on the lights. The officer was startled when he found another dead body. It was the body of 45-year-old Nancy Spangler. Her body was slumped over in a chair. There was a single bullet wound in her forehead. On the floor, about five feet from her body, was a revolver with three spent bullet casings. A man's sock was wrapped around the handle of the gun. In front of the body was a round table with a typewriter. On the typewriter was a piece of paper with a typewritten message that read, What do I say now that I have decided to do this? I found the gun by accident some time ago and couldn't help thinking about this. I don't know why I didn't say anything to you. I feel shattered. We have always argued about who would have the kids. I will. I know you will get along. You always have. Then there was a handwritten N. Nobly absent from the house was Bob Spangler. He returned home that afternoon around 4.45. Bob explained that he and Nancy had fought the night before. That morning, they got up and started arguing again. Bob told her that the marriage was over and he was leaving her. He left the house and walked around for a bit. He said he came back home, went directly into the garage, and got his car. He claimed that he never entered the home. He drove around for a while and listened to the Denver Broncos football game on the radio. He then went to see the animated Lord of the Rings movie at a local theater. He then came home and found the police had blocked out the house as a crime scene. Initially, Bob cooperated with the police. He agreed to take a gunshot residue test. When a gun fires, they can leave gunshot residue behind on a person's hand. Usually, it's found on the shooter's forefinger, thumb, and backside of their hand. The palms are usually clean because they are wrapped around the handle. Traces of gunshot residue were found on the back and the palm of Bob's hands. No gunshot residue was found on Nancy's hands. What was unusual was that the person who gave Bob the test was one of his friends. After the test, the lab tech took Bob back to his home for the night. The next day, Bob was going to take a polygraph exam. But the examiner determined that Bob was not in a good state to be tested, so it was postponed. The typewriter and the letter were both examined. It appeared that someone had tried to wipe away fingerprints from the keys. The handwritten N on the note was compared to other things Nancy had written, like checks. It was determined it was the same handwriting. Bob was questioned by the police again. This time, he had a different story. He claimed that when he returned that morning after his walk, he went into the house. He found Nancy's dead body in the basement and picked up the gun. He got freaked out, dropped the gun, and ran away. He didn't bother checking on the kids. He got into his car and drove away. He stayed away from the house because he thought he would be in trouble for not reporting his wife's death. On February 28, 1978, a month after the murder, Bob Spangler took a polygraph exam. But he skewed the results by hyperventilating on each question. He did the same thing when he was tested the next day. He claimed he was too nervous. The police were convinced that Nancy had killed her children and herself. However, they had no definitive evidence that Bob killed them either. Nancy's family was sure she didn't do it. They said she was afraid of guns. Also, Nancy was a petite woman and David was a strong teenage boy. How did she manage to suffocate him to death? Nancy's family believed that Bob had killed them. Ten days after the deaths, Bob's mother, Ione, had a stroke and passed away. Many people believe the shock of losing her daughter-in-law and grandchildren killed her. The ashes of Nancy, David, and Susan were sent to Nancy and Bob's hometown, Ames, Iowa. The grave markers only have their first and male names engraved on them. Days after the deaths, Sharon Cooper moved into the family's home with David. Days after that, they had a yard sale and sold many of the dead family members' possessions. Seven months after the deaths, in July 1979, Sharon and Bob were married. Sharon was an avid hiker, and this was an interest she and Bob shared. She especially liked hiking in the Grand Canyon in Arizona. So on their honeymoon, they hiked in the area. For the next several years, they continued to hike in the Grand Canyon. In April 1986, Bob went to visit his father, Merlin. Merlin was 91 and he was still in good health. Shortly after Bob arrived, Merlin had a fall. He died two weeks later. Bob got a large inheritance from his adopted father and he could stop working. By 1987, the relationship between Sharon and Bob had fallen apart. Sharon was mentally ill and showed signs of being manic depressive. She was also afraid of Bob because he had threatened to kill her several times. In June 1987, the couple got divorced. In the summer 1988, Sharon published a book about her experiences hiking, entitled On Foot in the Grand Canyon, Hiking the Trails of the South Rim. Bob started looking for a new female companion through personal ads in the newspaper. That's when he met 56-year-old aerobics instructor and accountant Donna Sudling. Donna had five grown children and several grandchildren. Bob and Donna started dating in April
0: 1989.
1: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. From the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems.
1: In August 1990, Bob and Donna got married. They sold both their homes and moved into a house in Durango, Colorado. Well, the marriage had its problems. Bob still loved hiking in the Grand Canyon. Donna did not because she had a tremendous fear of heights. She also had vertigo, so she felt uncomfortable in high places. Donna did not like that Bob still saw and spent a lot of time with Sharon. In the fall of 1991, Bob got a job as the morning host at a country music radio station. In the spring of 1993, Bob convinced a reluctant Donna to hike with him in the Grand Canyon. On April 9, 1993, they started their hike. Two days later, six-year-old Bob appeared at a ranger station. He patiently waited in line to talk to a ranger. They calmly told the ranger that his six-year-old wife had fallen off a cliff and was dead. Bob explained that Donna had wanted him to take a photo of her. As she posed for the photo, she lost track of where she was standing and fell. Bob said he made his way down the cliff and cleaned the blood off her face. He had left a red handkerchief on her face. The rangers were able to locate the body. It appeared that Donna had fallen 140 feet to her death. An autopsy confirmed that her death was from a fall. Bob very quickly had her body cremated. Donna's family was very suspicious of Bob's story. They knew Donna was terrified of heights, so they do not think she would have accidentally fallen. She would have been very aware of her surroundings around a cliff. But there was no evidence that there was any foul play. So the death was ruled an accident, and the case was closed a week later. In July 1994, Sharon moved into the house Donna and Bob had shared. However, she was only a paying roommate. On October 1, 1994, Bob rushed Sharon to the hospital. She was not conscious. Bob told the staff that she had swallowed a bottle of Tylenol pills. Sharon was placed in the ICU and Bob stayed by her side. About 12 hours after she was brought into the hospital, 52-year-old Sharon died. When she died, Bob was the only one with her. At home in the bedroom where Sharon swallowed the pills, several short, handwritten notes were left behind. The note that was addressed to Bob was signed off with a single letter S. At the time of Sharon's death, he was paying her settlements that were part of their divorce agreement. With her death, he no longer had to pay them. Also, she willed him $20,000. Sharon's death was not investigated by law enforcement. While the police did not investigate Sharon's death, other people in Bob's life thought that his third wife and fifth family member, not including his father, dying an untimely death was too much of a coincidence. They began to contact the police. So a detective began to look at the cases of Donna, Nancy, Susan, and David. He talked to Donna's family, and they were sure that Bob had killed her. They didn't think that there was any reason Donna would have hiked that trail because of her fear of heights and her vertigo. The detective worked on the case for the next several years. In June 1996, he got a hold of crime scene photos from the deaths of Susan, Nancy, and David. The medical examiner did not think that Nancy's gunshot wound was common in suicides. Usually, when someone takes their own life by shooting themselves, they press the gun directly against their head. Nancy was shot about 2 to 8 inches from her forehead. Also, the angle was off. Nancy was shot from above and the gun was pointed down. If she was shooting herself, she probably would have pointed the gun upwards. The detective continued to look at stats regarding suicide. One study found that 82% of people who died by suicide with a gun shot themselves in the temple and only about 7% shot themselves in the forehead. Also, only about 25% of women use a firearm to end their lives. But when they do, they usually do not shoot themselves in the head. Instead, they shoot themselves in the heart. So it's statistically unlikely that Nancy shot herself in the forehead. One thing many of the original investigators thought was odd was that a man's sock was wrapped around the handle of the gun. There was no good explanation for this, and some of them thought it might have been done to keep fingerprints off the handle. The investigators also noticed other strange things that didn't match Bob's story. He said that he came home, got his car, and left, and when he came back, the police were at his home. But it had snowed that morning, and there were multiple tire tracks in the snow on the driveway. Since Donna died in the Grand Canyon, which is federal property, the FBI agreed to help in the investigation. An agent was assigned to the case in January 1998. Then, in 1998, Bob Spangler quit his job at the radio station and sold his home and moved to Pennsylvania. He had met a woman on the internet and wanted to pursue a relationship with her. The problem was that the woman had never invited him and was freaked out when he showed up at her door. The woman quickly broke off the relationship. Bob decided to move to Grand Junction, Colorado. Meanwhile, the investigation into him continued. The authorities also kept surveillance on him. One thing that they noted was that Bob was always telling people different stories about his relationships and how they ended. For example, he told some people that Nancy had killed their kids and then herself. To others, he said his family had died in a car accident. Bob continued to troll the internet looking for women to date. Then, in August 1999, he met a woman named Judith Hilty at a breakfast for singles. They started dating after that initial meeting. Around this time, Bob also became interested in local theater. He got a role in a theater theater production of Annie. Then, in August 2000, Bob Spangler got some bad news. He had lung cancer and had spread to his brain. He was incurable, and he probably only had six months to live. A few weeks later, on September 1st, he married Judy. The investigators were worried that Bob might harm Judy, so on September 15th, 2000, they decided to bring him in for questioning. The problem with the investigation is that they didn't have the silver bullet that proved he committed any of the murders. The FBI agent asked a profiler to look at the cases. The profiler gave the investigators some suggestions on how to interrogate Bob so that he might confess. For example, when he was brought into the Sheriff's Department, they may look like there was a flurry of activity and many people were working on the so called Spangler Task Force. This would stroke his ego. Initially, Bob denied committing any of the murders. That night, he was allowed to go home with his wife. The next morning, he returned and talked openly about the murders. He said he had staged the fight the night Susan's friends were there. Then, on the morning of January 30th, he asked Nancy to come downstairs because he had a surprise for her. He had her sit down with her eyes closed and then shot her in the forehead. Bob said it was easier than divorce. When he was asked why he killed his children, he said that Sharon didn't like children. She wouldn't even want his teenage kids from his previous marriage to be part of their lives. As for the suicide note, he explained that he got Nancy to sign the paper saying it was for a Christmas letter. He then typed up the note himself. As for Donna, Bob said he had no real plans to kill her. He came up with the idea about a week before they went on the trip and then decided to go through with it on the morning of the murder. He had overpowered her and pushed her over the cliff. However, he almost went over the cliff with her. After she fell, he went down to the body to confirm she was dead. He was going to suffocate her in case she was still breathing. After confessing to the four murders, Bob was allowed to leave the sheriff's office. On October 2, 2000, he was indicted for Donna's murder. Bob was arrested the next day. On November 6, 2000, he pleaded not guilty. He claimed his confessions were the result of his brain cancer. On December 27, 2000, Bob Spangler agreed to a plea deal. He would plead guilty to the murder of Donna and he would receive life in prison. However, that sentence would only be eight months. Bob Spangler died on August 5, 2001 at the age of 68. Bob was never fully investigated regarding the death of his second wife, Sharon Cooper Spangler. Many investigators believe, at the very least, he manipulated her into taking her own life. There has also been no investigation regarding his father's death. However, investigators don't believe it is a coincidence that Merlin had a life-ending fall shortly after his adopted son, who murdered his two children and two wives, arrived for a visit.